This is Live Booleans, where Costa and Alex chat about, well, game dev things. Video games, dev culture, tech, game design, events, and all the other stuff they love to nerd out on. So thanks for tuning in. Welcome, everybody, to Live Booleans, episode 14. Uh, this week, we are talking about building and creating a legacy. So it is my utmost pleasure to introduce to you a renowned and recognized leader in the video game industry, formerly the CEO of Mattel, formerly the CEO of Sega of America, raised the company from $72 million in value to $1.5 billion during his tenure. And then he went on to being the CEO of LeapFrog. So he's a lot of hats here and a lot of uh, experience in the industry as well. In 1997, he was inducted into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame and has since taken on roles as an investor and in a bunch of different areas as well. So thank you for coming on and it's a pleasure to have you on this show, Tom Kalinske. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you guys and I, I hope we can have a fun conversation. Absolutely. So you began in, I guess we'll start off really where your, where your journey started off in Mattel, I believe it was. Um, tell us a little bit about how that started and then sort of how you worked your way into the video game industry. Well, sure. Actually, it started before Mattel. It started uh, in New York City with the subsidiary of, of J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency that worked on creating new products for existing clients. So I worked on things like uh, chunking frozen egg rolls for R.G. Reynolds Foods. <laughs> and uh, then one day we got an assignment from Miles Laboratories. We had the Miles one-a-day account, and we also had their children's vitamin called Chalks at the time. It was a, a square chocolate-flavored uh, multivitamin for kids. And one day Bristol Myers, their competitor, brought out animal-shaped, multicolored, multi-fruit-flavored vitamins, and the Chalks business basically fell off a cliff. It just disappeared. <laughs> And so they said to us, well, you got to come up with a new, uh, a new vitamin for us, and, and, and what should we do? And so we did all this research, and uh, we came back with, well, you got to, you got to do Flintstones vitamins. And the head of uh, the head of Miles uh, Vitamin Division said, oh, you're out of your mind. The Flintstones television show used to be on primetime television. Now they just put it on Saturday morning. That's a disaster. Why would you want to do that? And we went out and did more research, and of course, the fact that it was on Saturday morning actually helped the children's ratings of the of the characters and we went back and we said oh you got to do Flintstones and so they, they finally uh, they said well if you'll come out here and help us on this uh, come out here was to Elkhart Indiana and I was in New York City so I, I every Monday flew out to Elkhart Indiana which was not an easy flight and uh, and we worked on it and six months later it became the number one children's chewable vitamin in the United States and I believe it still is today although I haven't checked that recently um, and anyway, the way I got to Mattel was uh, back in 1971, the Senate here was had a subcommittee investigating children's advertising. And they were investigating the uh, candy bar makers, the uh, uh, sugared cereal makers, the Kellogg's, the General Mills, the Post's. And somehow they flew, they threw vitamins, children's tool vitamins, Flintstones in there because we were advertising to kids with yabba dabba doo, yabba dabba doo, Flintstones vitamins are good to chew. And we'd show uh, Fred Flintstone climbing a mountain with a, with a, in rotoscope with a child next to him. So Fred would be animated and the kid would be live action. It's the first time I think rotoscope was actually used in those days. Anyway, 
And so I'm at, I got called into the Senate subcommittee hearing and, you know, the senators sit up way high in their mahogany desks and you're down on a, uh, a very uncomfortable folding iron chair and <laughs> a, in a iron table and uh, Senator Margaret Chase Smith from from Maine points her finger at me and she says, so, Mr. Kalinske, you think selling drugs to children is a good idea? <laughs> and I said, well, Senator, I'm sure you're aware that Princeton's vitamins aren't a drug. It's a nutritional product. And moms are really happy that they can give their child a Flintstones vitamin and know that their child is getting enough vitamins and minerals, even though the moms want them to eat fruits and vegetables. Lots of times the kids won't do that. So let me read a letter from a mom to you that says, and I read this letter to her that basically said what I just said. And then I finished that letter and I said, by the way, I've got 5,000 more letters here. Would you like me to read some more of them to you? And she said, that'll be enough, Mr. Klinsky. Never ask me another question. <laughs> so the Mattel guys were sitting behind me and oh, wow. uh, they, they cracked up. They thought that was hysterical. And so in the hallway of the Senate uh, chambers afterward, they said, hey, that was that was a pretty good act. Uh, we need a product manager. Why don't you interview for a job with us out in California? And, you know, being a, I grew up in Arizona and used to vacation in California. I thought, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah. And so I interviewed and, and became a, a, a product manager on preschool toys initially. Oh, wow. uh, CNCs, Jack in the Boxes, putt-putt wooden vehicles, those sorts of things. So that's how I got to Mattel. Oh, wow. So that, would, that wouldn't be your first running with uh, the, the Justice, <laughs> or the, 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 you know, I mean, I know later on when uh, you were part of Sega, you, you did have to deal with them through the, because of violence in video games as well. So I guess you, you do have a lot of experience dealing with uh, and speaking to um, the law, I guess, there in, in the US as well. Well, yeah, I had more than that. I, I also, when we, when we did uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe uh, television show, some of them thought that that was a 30 minute commercial instead of a television <laughs> show. So I had, I, you know, I had a lot of experience yeah, with, yeah. with, with senators and representatives and FTC and FCC uh, people. Yeah. You're, you're a product manager in probably the most scariest area to market, which is to kids. Cause yes. you're getting uh, attacked from all angles. Like you need to prove your worth of your product to the parents and, that yes. need to convince them it's not as dangerous as they think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, I, I understood those concerns. And I always tried to be part of uh, here in the United States. We have what they call it, the, the COPA requirements for children's advertising. And I ha actually helped write some of those with uh, different uh, lawyers and what have you to make sure we weren't misleading uh, kids because it's easy to do, of course. I mean, you know, they, they, they did have a point on a on a kid's television show based on characters that were also toys. And we had to write into the rules that you couldn't advertise the toy within the television show that was uh, emanated from those characters. So things like that. Yeah. So anyway, I had a lot of experience with that stuff years and years and years ago. So you went, so after you went from Mattel, you went to Matchbox, which was a huge competitor to Mattel uh, at the time. Um, what was that like in terms of taking, yeah. you know, from from a 
you know, your company uh, is looking at you as, oh, our CEO has gone to the competitors. What was that like, that whole process? Well, it was, it was kind of interesting because actually when I was at Mattel, we tried, uh, Matchbox was in receivership in the UK at the time, and we tried to buy it out of receivership. And you guys probably know receivership in the UK is a, is a difficult thing. You know, you've got, to, you've got to satisfy the government, you've got to satisfy the banks, you've got to satisfy the creditors, which in this case was a lot of retailers. And, uh, and it, to, it, to make the transaction occur, I couldn't do it while I was at Mattel because one of the requirements of the government was you have to keep a manufacturing factory open in the outskirts of London, actually, in Enfield, uh, England. And, uh, well, you know, we couldn't agree to that. We weren't going to do that. And uh, so, anyway, my friend, David Yeh, who ran uh, Universal Manufacturing, which manufactured even some Hot Wheels cars for us at Mattel and some Barbie dolls and uh, some Masters of the Universe figures. He was a big manufacturer, and he became a very close friend. And he said, hey, I'm going to buy this out of receivership, and I want you to join me. And so uh, that's why I left and I, and I joined him because it was time to do something a little more entrepreneurial. And sure enough, we, we bought it at a very favorable price. And, uh, and then of course, companies are in receivership because they're losing money. I had to work on turning it around and that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. I had to change management in England and change management in Germany and France. And, and uh, most of the business, by the way, was in Europe. And interestingly, Australia was a very strong market for Matchbox, mm-hmm. uh, both the regular Matchbox cars and also something called models of yesteryear. So it was very strong in Australia. And uh, anyway, after we were changing the management and moving things around, David looks at me and he says, now go close that damn factory in Enfield. <laughs> 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 I mean, I mean, Ma- Matchbox is. I, I, I've got a whole collection of Matchbox cars from when I was a kid. It's. It, it was definitely such a popular toy here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that, I guess that entrepreneurial spirit is the common thread between a lot of some of your experiences there. Because after Matchbox, you ret- well, you retired or semi-retired or uh, sort of went on a holiday, right? Well, um, actually, what happened was after three years of running Matchbox, and we took it public on the New York Stock Exchange, by the yeah. way, which was really quite yeah. something. And we were doing business. Uh, we got it profitable. We we increased the revenue back up to about three hundred fifty million around the world, and it was profitable. And we were actually doing, uh, we were manufacturing in Macau, mm-hmm. China, Macau on island, you know, mm-hmm. part of China, and we. Uh, uh, we were selling in China, which Mattel wasn't doing without us. So we had quite a nice business going, and we took it public on the New York Exchange. And then, uh, and, and I was traveling like 250 days a year. Wow. And I said to David, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And he said, Well, let's sell it. And mm-hmm. so we ended up selling it to Tyco Industries, mm-hmm. which years later Mattel bought. So <laughs> it, ended back, it ended up back at Mattel. Uh, but anyway, so then after that, I was on vacation, and and that's when the famous story of Nakayama, who I knew by the way, I, it wasn't like he was yeah, stalking yeah. me or something. I mean, I did, <laughs> I did know the guy, and yeah. he, uh, he he actually had when I was at Matchbox, he wanted us to distribute the Master System in Europe mm-hmm. because our distribution in Europe by then was so good at Matchbox, mm-hmm. and uh, I looked at the eight bit Master System and I said, gee, it's not that different from NES, and mm-hmm. so I didn't, I didn't. I chose not to do that, uh, but he was persistent in trying to get me to work for Sega. And to his credit, he tracked me down in Hawaii, and I was on vacation. And he convinced me to go back to Japan with him, and 
and look at 16-bit technology and uh, color handheld technology, which became Game Gear. And he was right. I fell in love with it. I thought, wow, this really is different. Because remember, I was used to Intellivision and I had a little bit of a knowledge about what NES was like. But I had never seen anything like 16-bit technology or mm-hmm. color handheld. So it really knocked me over. I was really impressed by it. So was that was that the big pull for you to go into the games industry? Was it was it the 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 wow of of 16-bit technology? I mean, to go from uh, uh, from a, from a toy industry. I mean, it, it is very similar, but to then just you know be almost semi-retired <laughs> on a beach and then just jump back straight into it into a into well, the games it, industry. It, remember, there's a few other things involved there. Remember, at Mattel, we had Intellivision, yeah. right? Exactly. And in television was at the time of Atari in the early 19, late 70s, early 80s. And in television had been started by a couple guys who worked for me in the toy division. Mm-hmm. And the CEO of Mattel decided it should be a separate company and moved it down the street into a separate building and took it away from me. So I was kind of annoyed about that, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when, Intellivi- when Atari crashed, and Intellivision was crashing because of Atari's crash, basically. Uh, overproliferation of software, too much inventory. They were making more software than they had hardware in existence. You know, it's crazy stuff. Uh, and I would go into these Mattel board meetings because Mattel at the time was a conglomerate. We had a, a fairly large board. We owned Intellivision. We owned the toy business. We, we owned Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. We owned Metaframe, a tubular steel company. We owned Audio Magnetics at audio tape manufacturing company, um, Ringling Brothers Barnum & Circus, I think I said, uh, 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 Metaframe, uh, uh, Optagon Oregon, and everything went to hell the same yeah. time period except for the toy business. Mm-hmm. And I had been warning the CEO that this, was, that this was likely to happen because there was too much inventory of Intellivision software and Atari software at retail. And there was no internet, it was all retail. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't listen to me about, about this. And so when it crashed, it nearly destroyed the toy business. We had to sell off all of our other divisions. We sold in television for practically nothing. Uh, and then we went to our banks, Bank of America, because we needed working capital in order to pay for tooling and R&D to make the next year's line of toys. And the banks wouldn't talk to us. They were so mad at us, they would not talk to us. And so I had to go hat in hand, kind of begging, Drexel Burnham, uh, Mike Milken on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles and uh, present our, our, our case that uh, we were going to have to go bankrupt. And Mike's famous comment to me was, Barbie should never go bankrupt. I'll refinance you in 36 hours. And he did. <laughs> and so, so we were refinanced with very expensive debt, you know, paying 15% interest rates and things like that. But nevertheless, we survived. And we got out of it and we made the toy company profitable again. And so I was, you know, you say you get bad, jump into the, to the video game business. I had some experience yeah. with it. Yeah. Not exactly a great favorable experience, yeah. but I did have some experience with it. And so this was kind of a way of getting a little bit of vindication, if you will, get mm-hmm. jump into Sega and, and prove that uh, video games industry could be good and healthy and done correctly. Yeah. That's why I did it. When um, the video game as a whole because I mean it, it had been around I guess at this point for 15-20 years um, when it had yeah. you know come across the, the Mattel table pretty much when it entered your life did it seem like the natural progression from toys it would go to video games because nowadays if you know kids today I'm not sure if they would 
uh, open question. I'm not sure if there's the same progression from toys to games. It's almost more TV to games. Um, did it feel like a natural progression? It felt like a natural progression at the time because the kids were, as you said, they were changing from toys to video games at around age nine, 10. And they were staying with video games through their teenage years, but then stopping. And uh, of course, Nintendo absolutely owned that business. Absolutely 100%, well, not 100, but 98%, they owned that market. And so uh, the only way to counter that was to uh, continue that age progression. And so that was my main strategy was, uh, one of my main strategies was to, to go after older teenagers and college age players and convince them that there still was great fun and enjoyment and play to be had with video games that were skewed to them in both content and appeal and, you know, sports and role playing and strategy and what have you. How did that, how did that thought come across that, um, is it just sort of looking at the market at the time and seeing that, that this was where Nintendo made its bank and then no one really was after that market of teenagers and above? Was yeah, well, it's it pretty obvious to me because yeah. they had such a ironclad lock on the child market, if you will, that nine to 13 or 14 year old. There was just it was it would have been foolish to kind of just go head to head with them on that market. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we would have won. And so the obvious thing to me was, well, let's go after the older ones because those older players still want to keep playing. They just don't want to play this kitty stuff so much mm-hmm. anymore. Let's make it a little more appealing to, to them. And that's why so much of our business at the time gravitated to initially to sports and, and both sports games that we did ourselves at Sega and that we, we got from Electronic Arts and, and, and others. Uh, and then strategy games and, as I said, role-playing games and what have you. And then also do it more on American licenses as opposed to Japanese licenses. Uh, so it seemed obvious to me. I know people say today, gee, that was, that was really insightful. I didn't think so. I thought it was pretty, pretty <laughs> obvious to do. <laughs> and how was it, I mean, working with game developers at the time and trying to convince them to, to sort of develop for Sega even when? Well, that was the, that was the yeah. other difficulty. I mean, it was mm-hmm. impossible because Nintendo was so difficult uh, to deal with. I mean, they, the, the game developers uh, basically had to do everything 100% Nintendo's way or they wouldn't get a game approved. And if they dared publish a game on the Sega system, Nintendo would drop them mm-hmm. and, wouldn't, and wouldn't ship them uh, cartridges. And so, so it, was a, it was an ironclad mm-hmm. agreement that they, they had over the marketplace. It was very hard to crack it. And the only reason we were able to crack it was because there were a few game uh, uh, third-party developers like Electronic Arts that were kind of pissed off about it. You know, they didn't like being dictated to this way. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to, to uh, craft a fairly favorable agreement with Electronic Arts and then later with Activision and Tengen and a number of others in order to, uh, to start getting uh, them to publish their games on the on the Sega Genesis or Sega Mega Drive platforms. And uh, it wasn't easy, though. It was, it was very hard. Uh, and, of course, the, a lot of the Japanese companies wouldn't do it at all. They were just terrified of Nintendo. So it took a long, long time. Eventually, when you got enough hardware out, they had to kind of get on board. You know, it's the old chicken and egg uh, deal. Uh, but it took a long time. Was it ever looked at 
as monopolistic behavior. Oh yeah, from, from the- uh, it, it was looked at as uh, monopolistic behavior, and they they did get uh, well. The punishment wasn't much of a punishment, unfortunately. The the punishment was the government said, "Okay, we'll slap you on your wrist, and you've got to you've got to give these coupons." And I can't remember the exact dollar <laughs> amount of the coupons, but it was a you know. Give these coupons to the consumers so that they get your games at a lower price. Well, all that and did that was, was help Nintendo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Should have given them coupons for buying Sega games or something. Yeah, like that, that would have yeah. been a little smarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess as a huge part of of going for that teenage demographic was the marketing tactics. And I know at the time there was some. There's still some iconic uh, marketing campaigns like the blast processing. Of yeah. the Sega Genesis and the the shouting, the Sega shout, the, the infamous yeah. Sega shout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and what was, um, how was it sort of balancing uh, uh, going for, I mean, you know, because it did go for that sort of teenage demographic and it was sort of edgier and cooler. Yeah. How yeah. was it balancing the going into that, um, the market and, and playing towards the, the more, uh, you know, cooler things, and 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 that sort of delved into the the blood with Mortal Kombat and that sort of stuff. How was the balance between keeping it a, a game console and also making it edgier and cooler for for that kids demographic, yeah. and still having to play with the Copa rules as well? Yeah, well, and of course that w- that was another one of the big disagreements with my my initially with myself and and Sega Japan. They didn't want to attack Nintendo in advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, they weren't even sure about going after the older age group, uh, and they, you know, the, basically they disagreed with all this stuff. But then when it started working, it was kind of okay with them, you know. <laughs> Oops, and uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I dropped my my mic. Um, but you know, the whole idea. I mean, some of my favorite advertising that, that we did was exactly, as you said, make us the edgier company. I mean, I, one of the commercials I loved was one of the initial first ones we ever did. It, we showed this guy that looked kind of like Bill Gates, sort of a nerdy guy, you know, and and not really cool at all. And then he starts playing Sega Genesis and he changes completely and he goes from being a nerd to this really cool guy. And of course, at the end, he he yells, Sega. And so, so that was that was really fun. And you mentioned the blast processing. That was another there were many commercials we did. We talked about blast processing. But one of my favorites was we had the uh, Super NES on the back of an old smoking milk truck and we had the sega genesis on the back of a ferrari and it takes off down the the uh, the raceway and of course the point was that with blast processing you can be a lot faster than that old slow super nes (laughs) so there were a number i mean i could talk about all those commercials endlessly i I loved a lot of them and then and then i uh, the one i did we did for uh for game gear was another one of my favorites i had an airedale dog at the time and we used the Airedale dog drinking out of our toilet, which unfortunately it did frequently. Yeah. And we talked about how if you were like a dog and couldn't see colors and were basically colorblind, then playing a, a Game Boy was okay for you. But if you wanted to see real colors and uh, not be like a dog, you needed a Game Gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's a good example of the, of the different... Um, the, the differences between Sega of America and Sega of Japan says, was it that Sega of Japan wanted to keep it very in line with how Nintendo was marketing? 
and what other sort of cultural differences and how did that influence the decisions that were made and yeah, between Sega yeah. of America and Sega of Japan? Yeah, a- absolutely. They, they wanted to do what Nintendo does, basically, and we wanted to do what Nintendo don't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of weird because, you know, obviously we started being very successful fairly quickly. And I think in 93, we passed Nintendo in share of market in the United States, you know, according to all the Nielsen reports. And even after passing Nintendo in share of market, I would still get um, comments and requests from Sega of Japan saying, gee, you're spending all this money making new commercials to go after college age students and older teens. Why don't you just do use some of the commercials we're doing here and just dub English onto them and use the same thing we're doing here? And I'd say, are you out of your mind? You never got over a 10% share of market and we've got a 55% share of market and you want us to do what you're doing? Uh, Of course, that didn't endear me to them as I later discovered. But anyway, uh, pretty pretty obvious that we didn't want to do what Sega Japan was doing. Where was the drive for that? Was it? A, was it? Do you think it was a control thing from from Sega of Japan, or a bit of jealousy, or a combination of things like that? Well, I didn't really. I, I, at first, I thought it was just they wanted to save money and yeah. use the same commercial. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't really understand it in any kind of depth, and it, it took me actually until after I left the company mm-hmm. uh, when somebody told me that basically what was happening was here we were. You know, and by the way, back to quickly on Mortal Kombat, they didn't want to do Mortal Kombat with real blood either. Uh, and we did. And obviously it worked very, very well. And even Howard uh, Lincoln admitted that uh, that he was wrong. And he thought that that not doing green, green gore would endear him to the parents of America and help sell the products for Nintendo. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't work at all. Uh, and and anyway, uh, Japan didn't, Sega Japan didn't want us to do real blood, but we convinced them that it was the right thing or that, that we were going to do it anyway. But at, what happened, what was happening back in Japan that I didn't understand uh, was every Monday, Nakayama-san would walk into the decision room and he'd beat the hell out of the, the Sega Japan marketing guys and Sega Japan product development guys. And uh, because they weren't as successful as Tom was in the United <laughs> States. Well, after a while, all those guys getting beaten up by the chairman of the company, they started to hate Tom. Who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, they knew who I was. Yeah. But anyway, you can, you can understand why that would occur. I didn't get it at the time. But after I left the company, I could certainly, uh, and somebody pointed it out to me, I could see their, their point. And they, they stopped wanting to cooperate with this, with uh, Sega of America. They, they stopped uh, helping us. Uh, and so, that, you know, there was a lot of jealousy, if you will, and, and a lot of anger toward us. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it like? I mean, I know, so when you, when you made the decision to put Mortal Kombat with blood and, you know, not, not sort of try to censor it in any way, how was it dealing with the backlash? I know that sort of led to, in one way or another, the creation of the ESRB and the whole ratings board. Um, how, how was that? <laughs> and dealing well, with, the, with the government in, in that capacity. Remember, before we did Mortal Kombat with Blood, we did our own rating system on many other games before it. And the Sega rating system was developed by Professor uh, Arthur Pober, who is a professor of both child psychology and education at uh, New York University. 
I had used him as part of the, the toy industry guidelines, uh, years in, uh, advertising guidelines years before. So I knew him quite well. And he put together a panel of sociologists, psychologists, educators, uh, concerned citizens, basically, to review and rate every game that we did. So we had our own rating system on Sega games. So when we did Mortal Kombat, obviously, we knew we were going to rate it for mature audiences. Uh, and 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 had that rating system, and and by the way, we I also did feel the need for having the. I'm really I think I was the main push behind the uh, what at the time was the IDSA, because the the software association that that was uh, that Sega and Nintendo were part of at the time really cared. They didn't care about the video game industry. They cared mm-hmm. about Microsoft. They cared about Oracle. They cared about. Uh, uh, business software. They didn't care about video game software. And so we needed to have our own representation, our own lobbyists in Washington. And that's why we formed the, the IDSA. And then the IDSA, basically, they don't like to admit this, but they adapted the, the Sega rating system. They hired Arthur Pober and they, they changed it a little bit. You know, a couple of the designations were a little different, but basically it was the Sega rating system amplified upwards a little bit yeah they didn't want to admit that it was uh, they didn't want to admit yeah <laughs> exactly um and, with, um, and so i was just like with the uh, with sega wanting to attract the older audience like the teenagers and stuff like that i guess did the ratings have a like a a positive effect in a cynical way on the marketing because now you're saying here is the group of games designed specifically for you because they're rated towards you well, it, it certainly did, yeah, because it was easier for everybody to see what kind of a pro- what was in the product, you know. And I, I remember again getting called before Senate uh, on on this stuff before not not the hearings that went public, but privately in private meetings with senators. And I, I remember saying to Senator Feinstein, she was mad at me for for doing mature games on the Sega Genesis, and I said, you know. Someday, the video game industry is going to be bigger than the movie industry. And you, you love getting votes from all those people that work for Disney down in the Los Angeles area. But remember, Disney does G-rated movies, PG-rated movies, and R-rated movies. And we're no different than Disney. And by the way, we soon will have more employees than Disney. Mm-hmm. She didn't like that at all. And she didn't believe me. She thought I was threatening her. Well, of course, today, as you know, the, the video game industry is twice the size of the movie industry and the music industry combined. Yeah. So anyway. Um, just touching back on the on the differences between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, um, that sort of bubbled, would you say, in, in 1995 with at E3, you um, announcing that the Sega Saturn would release the day after. How was that in terms of, uh, well, to your confidence within Sega and, uh, and, and also your, you know, almost your, your mental well-being at the time, having to deal with that as well? Yeah, I wasn't in favor of it, obviously. I mean, yeah. I, I was ordered to do it. I was very, I, I mean, I was desperate to keep Genesis uh, and Mega Drive alive in the United States and Europe for a longer period of time. And I didn't want to introduce Saturn. There wasn't enough software for it that would be available. Uh, and it, well, there wasn't even enough hardware. Uh, you couldn't even supply enough to have decent retail distribution. So the whole thing was a, was a mistake. And uh, this was toward the end of my time at Sega, obviously, where I was getting overruled now by, by Japan, who felt this was the right thing to do. 
And I was pretty much convinced it wasn't the right thing to do. I also wasn't crazy. Frankly, I just wasn't crazy about the Saturn hardware. I shouldn't say I wasn't. My head of R&D, Joe Miller, who was a very, very smart guy, unfortunately he's passed away, but he, he, uh, he felt that the next platform after Genesis and Mega Drive, the internet was just starting to come around back in those days. He felt that the next platform had to make much better use of the internet. He felt that the, uh, a lot of the capabilities had to be much better than, than what 16-bit was. Uh, and the graphics had to be much, much better. And of course, Saturn was better, but not to the degree that he felt was, was necessary. So I relied on him and, and, and believed in what he, what he told me. And I, I still think he was, I think he was correct. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, there were a lot of mistakes made, but uh, certainly not having a better platform, certainly if we were gonna do it, having more great software at the time of launch and have enough hardware to fill retail stores would have been a good idea. <laughs> and, and we didn't have any of those things. So it was a, it was a disaster. Um, I know you never, I mean, I know you left shortly after that, but did you, ever hear about the Dreamcast in terms of when you were part of Sega? Was it ever in development or was it too early for it, that? It was just beginning and it was in development and I was, I was aware of it, uh, but I didn't, I didn't have much, I didn't have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it, at least I think they were, they were waking up to the needs of the, of the marketplace and, uh, and Dreamcast was probably much closer to what Joe would have wanted yeah. uh, than what Saturn was. Well, exactly. I mean, what you're, what you're saying in terms of what Joe had mentioned were key components of a next generation system seems to be the way that Sega of Japan went with the Sega Dreamcast in terms of internet connectivity and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, and, and I do think Joe had an influence on them because he was a very, very smart guy. He was the kind of guy you could form a company around. And I, I know his views were, were, were heard in Japan, and I think they were listened to. Um, how would... I know Sega went after the Sega Dreamcast, it sort of withdrew out of the hardware yeah. business and sort of focused on software. What would your uh, vision for Sega have been if you had stayed on for, for more years after that? Well, I, I still, I would have, if, if it had been the right hardware configuration, I, there's a definite advantage to the company that brings out great hardware. Uh, the developers, the engineers, the programmers, the artists, everybody inside the company understands that hardware uh, configuration and its capabilities a lot better than an outside third-party developer does. And so that would have enabled Sega to continue to make absolutely spectacular uh, games, spectacular software. And I, I think we could have given, a, given all the current players a, a good run for the money. Now, as you know, we had a deal in hand with Sony, and I was very close with, with Sony in the early days uh, because Sony uh, didn't know how to do video games, basically. Olaf Olafsson, the, the head of the Consumer Products Division, and I were very close friends. Uh, I knew Mickey Shuloff very, very well, and we wanted to do a joint Sony-Sega hardware platform or, or Sony-Sony-Sega, Sony, Sega, didn't matter what it was called. Uh, and we, we had the agreement by Sony Japan to go ahead and do that, but Nakayama-san didn't want to do it. Because mm -hmm. uh, I remember he said to me, he said, what do you want to help them for? They don't know how to do hardware. Why should we help them? Mm -hmm. Well, my point was we were so much better at software that nobody makes a lot of money on hardware. 
So all the money is made on software. So we would have been better at doing the software and we would have made more revenue, more profits off of the software we did on such a system than they would have been able to do, at least initially. But anyway, it didn't happen. And, and, and I mean, listening to that is also, it's sort of, Sony is the 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 underdog almost that um, got, you know, thrown around, you know, they had the deal with yeah. Nintendo as well, and then they had a potential deal with Sega as well. And then uh, sort of after that, you know, they probably felt burnt or felt that, you know, we can do this on our own. We don't need Sega or Nintendo. And then yeah. launched the PlayStation just based off that. I mean, um, did you know at the time that that was something that would have happened in terms of when you lost the deal with, with Sony? Oh, sure. I mean, once we weren't doing it together, I knew they were going to do it by themselves. And of course, they hired a whole bunch of people from Sega to help mm. them do that. So, uh, so that was, yeah, I was well aware of it. Mm -hmm. And and I guess Sony really, I mean, Sega started the marketing and the, the, the framework for marketing to an older audience. Um, Sony really copied that. I mean, I know that there was, uh, you know, in the console wars, there's a couple of, um, uh, there's a couple of events that occurred. I think it was in the mid 90s as well, where um, the, the Sony would take, I think it was, uh, I, I can't remember where it was, but it was in, within a hotel or so, of some setting and Sony was there and Sega were there and Sony was basically marketing and um, annoying everyone that was working oh, at yeah. Sega by writing things and sort of uh, popping all these yeah. balloons and yeah. doing all these yeah. things like that. And it sort of took a page right out of um, Sega. Well, well, Steve Race was had been uh, one of the heads of marketing at, at Sega and he went to Sony and so he he learned well at Sega how to how to do this stuff and uh, and so yeah he had uh, guys sticking pins in our yeah. huge Sonic uh, the Hedgehog uh, inflatables that were around the hotel and what have you and uh, yeah he did a lot of yeah. a lot of dirty tricks if you will. Um, what, I mean, what do you think it is that Sega imprinted on the rest of the games industry more generally as a whole? Well, I think. First of all, let's face it, the, the industry now, the I, Sony today tells me that their average age player is 31 years of age. Mm -hmm. uh, when I left Sega, the, the average age of our players was 18. So you can see how this uh, going after the older age audience has really worked. I mean, there's a lot of 40-year-olds playing and older playing video games today and enjoying it still. So uh, I think that was the big imprint we, we, we started on the industry. And of course, they've all they've all continued now. Uh, and uh, of course, then, of course, it's all moved from consoles to not all, but a good part of it's moved to online games and uh, and uh, the ability to play online and to play against many other people around the world and what have you. So all this stuff. It's changed dramatically, but at the same time, I think we started a lot of that. Uh, I mean, you know, we started the we had the we had the Sega Channel, mm -hmm. uh, so you could you know could have a wide selection of games for fifteen dollars a month and, and play them. Uh, we we did do uh, games on, on telephone lines, which was not a great idea, by the way. Talk about <laughs> latency! Holy cow! I remember, I remember, I was supposed to play against the head of AT and T, and he was in New Jersey, and I, of course, was here in Northern California, and we were doing, uh, we were racing GP Monaco, I think, and the latency was so bad, I couldn't tell what the hell was going on. In the game. <laughs> it's not like Wi-Fi, <laughs> like the internet today, but but anyway, we did start a lot of those the, those sorts of things. 
and I think that helped change the industry as well. And of course, I mean, every a lot of people don't understand why did we do Sega CD? We knew that optical disc for a while anyway was going to be the platform of the or the the medium of the future, mm-hmm. and none of us knew how to program for an, on an optical disc. So we all had to learn how to do that. And so the Sega CD was a very necessary step and really helped a lot of people, really helped Sony, by the way, because they did a lot of uh, games for, I think they did six initially on the Sega CD. Uh, And it's not a trivial thing to go from programming cartridges to programming for an optical disc. There's all kinds of tricks involved and, and we all had to learn how to do that. So anyway, a lot of stuff that we did uh, helped push the industry forward, help push the age range up, help get more players involved. Uh, we didn't mention female players, but we did a lot mm-hmm. to get female players involved. Uh, I, I remember speaking at one uh, E3 and somebody asked, some reporter said, well, what's going to be the, the best-selling title of the year? And I said, well, Barbie uh, designer. And everybody yeah. laughed. But Barbie... Uh, as a video game that year was a huge, huge hit because it's the first time girls really had something to to play with. Uh, anyway, lots yeah. of stuff. Even, I mean, perfect example, the Sega channel, I, I didn't even think of that, but that was basically games uh, on a subscription. So, and that's, that's what is sort of coming all the way around that's now. cutting edge now. Is cutting <laughs> edge, right? Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> Got, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about that. You know, I thought this was going to be an easy thing to do because I was under the impression that every cable box everywhere in every city was the same. Well, that isn't the case. And Joe Miller, my friend of head of R&D, one day he calls me to come over to the downstairs in the R&D area. And he shows this huge room and there are all these different cable boxes <laughs> from Atlanta, from Boston, from Chicago, from Dallas, from Seattle, around the room. And he says, do you realize every one of these is different? And we have to figure out how to make our games work on every one of these damn things? <laughs> do you reckon um, Sega, like with all these things of it wanting to do cutting edge things, that it, it thrived in not having the technology available? Because like originally I was going to ask, did you feel hindered at the time of the lack of technology? Like there's so much more we could do, but was that room for, for you to grow really? Like you saw an opportunity in there. Well, I did. I, I thought there was, I realized that the technologies available weren't perfect, but on the other hand, there was enough technology available that we could push the envelope. We could do some of these things that hadn't been done in the industry before and, uh, and the, that they would continue to, help the industry grow and thrive. And, and that was the whole, that was the whole point of everything we were doing was trying to try to grow this business. Mm. Um, so did you know at the time, I mean, that Sega would become this cultural icon that it is today? No, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't. Uh, and I, I, I frankly, I, I, one of the stories I tell people, you know, when Blake Harris, the author of Council Wars came up to me, uh, what it was now, five, six years ago, and he, he came up to me and he said, uh, I want to do a book on the time period that you were fighting against Nintendo when you were CEO of Sega of America. And I said, that's very interesting, Blake. There's probably 200 people in the world who care. And he said, no, no, you're wrong. There's a big audience of people who really love that period of time and, and, and really want to recreate it and be involved in it again. And, 
he turned out to be right and I turned out to be wrong. <laughs> so something that we'd like to do sort of wrap up um, our podcast is to ask or to, to sort of if you could give a piece of advice to people who are in the creative industries or in the video game industry um, and are doing things in that industry, what would you give them? What would be the piece of advice that can help them on their on their day-to-day or even help them on their long, long-time journey as they're going on? Boy, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I, one of the obvious things is don't give up, keep playing. You know, you keep keep at it, keep pushing the envelope, keep pushing the edges, keep pushing that technology, make that technology do more than even the people who created the technology think it can do. And, and let's make uh, video games uh, as realistic as real life, if you will. It's yeah. <laughs> a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and let's let's also keep expanding the market. And, you know, we still don't have enough women playing we we have a lot of older people playing but not enough you know we can have a lot of i'm 76 we could have, I, I don't play much anymore unless my sons force me to uh so you know we, I, I would just say let's let's keep playing let's keep pushing the envelope let's keep trying to uh, to better this uh this art form that we've created and the fact that it's bigger than movies and music combined today uh, really makes me proud that we at least were at the beginning of all that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what kept you you going? Like when, uh, as you say, keep going, pushing the envelope. In in those times where you know you have to have a thick skin in the in the nineties console wars, what kept you going? Again, the same the same desire that I, I thought this was really a special, uh, whether you call it an art form or a technology, that it really allowed people to enjoy themselves, to have an, a great deal of pleasure out of out of playing video games. And, and, I, I, and I really thought that this was an important thing to do. I also recognize, and when we didn't get into this at all, but I recognize that video game technology was so involving, so in, creative, so much fun, so almost addictive. Why couldn't we use video game technology to make education and curriculum as interesting, as uh, good as video games? And of course, that's what I did, or I tried to do when I when I when I left Sega. I tried to do it with Leapfrog and a couple of other uh, companies. I'm still on the board of a couple of education technology companies, trying to uh, to do that. Oh, by the way, one other you might be interested in this. One other company I'm I'm actually chairman of is called Mixed Dimensions, which is a 3D printing company. Yeah. Well, guess where the biggest market is for 3D printing. Video games. Because all you guys want to create your own characters, yep. your own soldiers, your own avatars, your own spaceships. Yep. With our technology, you can click on this creation you made because now you want a physical manifestation of it. Click on it and we will, for different sizes, to pick the size, nine inch size, whatever you want, we will 3D print it in very high quality resin, full color, and ship it to you. So you might want to try that. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, That's definitely sure. something we've played with in the past, but I'm yeah, definitely curious for this service. Yeah. And, yeah. and just sort of one last thing. I mean, now that you're sort of focusing on education and you still have that burning desire for education and sort of games cutting across to 3D printing and other technologies, what do you think um, that companies should be focusing on looking at or what are the uh, emerging uh, components of this sort of crossbreed of industries that that interest you and also um, people should be focusing or might be popular in the future 
Yeah, well, I still think there's an, a, a lot to be done within education and using, utilizing video game technology. You know, I'm, I'm trying to work mainly in the younger, in this, in this switch from my Sega years, now I'm trying to do it with younger aged products, you know, teaching children to, to read earlier, teaching them math earlier, teaching them sciences earlier. But certainly, I'm sure you guys all can reflect back on what college course you had that you absolutely hated because it just wasn't any, it wasn't enjoyable. Why can't it be enjoyable? Why can't we use this great video game technology to make physics more fun and interesting? I was involved with one of those, by the way, trying to make physics fun and interesting. <laughs> that was a tough one. <laughs> but anyway, I do think it can be done. Certainly a lot of people smarter than I am can figure out why shouldn't, why should learning be drudgery? Why should it be difficult? Why shouldn't it be more enjoyable? So I think there's an awful lot that can be done in that area. So that's something I would ask people to focus on if they could. Mm. And it's almost a positive uh, spin on, I mean, I mean, a lot of people when they're focusing on making games for a younger demographic, they're focusing on getting them addicted to it and, and being able, I mean, nowadays on, on iPads and, and tablets and stuff, and, you know, they're getting them to want to purchase things in game and, and that sort of stuff. So it, it is a very, it, it's a, almost a positive spin on trying to make a game that is beneficial to right. um, a younger audience as well. So that's that's a very noble cause for sure. Yeah, but well, we're trying to make better engineers, uh, better scientists, uh, yeah. get more people into those areas so that we can uh, actually have a better world perhaps, mm -hmm. yeah. all because of video games. I knew it would happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking back to my classroom in 99 and uh, that was the first classroom. There was enough computers for the students and you can imagine the uproar from the parents and how quick the kids are pulled. Oh, they're going to forget how to write. They don't use their hands. And, oh exactly. God. Exactly. Yeah, I remember all that. Yeah. Oh. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you, Tom. It's been absolutely well, well, thank you, great. guys. I, I enjoyed the conversation and I, and I wish you well and keep at it. Don't give up uh, and keep playing. Thank, thank you so you. much, Tom. Fantastic. Have a good one.